0: Hello and welcome to The Intentional Clinician. I'm your host, Paul Kraus, Licensed Professional Counselor. Today's episode is not going to be your typical episode of The Intentional Clinician podcast. That is because I have a major announcement. For about the last five months, I've been working on a project. This project is about violence, it's about our culture, it's about our times, and what I hope will be a utilitarian solution to some Of the violence in our culture. I heard a story, whether or not it's true, I don't know, but I heard a story back in November. I've heard other stories like this before, but it was on the Rich Roll podcast uh, about a lady in a school who was the front desk person, and a man came in with weapons and looked very distraught. And apparently, we found out later, he had intentions to shoot innocent people at this school. And what happened uh, in the story was, supposedly, the lady pleaded, cried, and said, please don't do this. You don't have to do this. We can get you help. Something like that. The man put down his weapons, laid on the floor, and said, call the police. I need help. I don't want to do this. And he eventually got help through uh, the psychiatric hospital. I believe he eventually did go to courts and was on some type of probation. I have been trying to track down the source of the story, but I haven't found it yet. The point being is we've all heard stories where somebody was very angry um, and somebody might have talked them out of fighting somebody. You see this, uh, you know, you probably, if you've ever been around a fight, you see that there's always a peacemaker in the crowd uh, if you ever were in a, uh, around a fight in high school or college, uh, a bar fight, and somebody say, hey, don't do this, we don't need to do this, they're not worth it. They say something like that. It's not worth it to get arrested. Just back down. Um, there's people that can help us calm down and remember who we are and that we don't need to do this. The problem is with violence in our culture— one of the most prevalent is domestic violence. There's not a third party there all the time to stop the violence between the partners or in the lone wolf shooter. There's not another voice saying, hey, you know what? There's maybe another way to take care of your anger here. Uh, you don't have to go shoot innocent people. That person might be isolated. There's no way for them to reach out to know what to do. And so with that sort of isolation in mind, I've been reading, of course, there's so many articles about How people now are more lonely than ever, even though they feel more connected than ever through the internet and television and all of these ways we connect digitally, we're not connecting physically. Um, And having that humanity face-to-face to to sort of be able to see a a bigger picture, even if our problems won't be solved and everything's not going to go away, that there are different solutions besides violence to our problems in this world. And there's many ways that this argument could be taken down. I'm not uh, an academic. I've got a master's degree. I'm not an academic in philosophy or logic. Um, There's plenty of cynical ways to, you know, smash my argument, whatever. But people still have made solutions for a lot of things in our time that we're told these were not good ideas. And so as a result of that, I'm going to give you my idea. Uh, Following my idea, there is a discussion between myself and Mike Speakman, one of my mentors, about anger and violence uh, and our personal and professional encounters with it. So, before I get further, a lot of this content is going to be on violencepreventionhotline.org. That's violencepreventionhotline.org, which is a website I have to promote the campaign that I'm going to discuss, and also a link to change.org to sign the petition about why we need a national violence prevention hotline in the United States of America. Um, Why do we need this hotline? Well, we have a national suicide prevention lifeline. Um, It's been nationalized since the early 2000s. Before that, it was just a different group of hotlines all across the United States in different cities and counties managed by different municipalities and groups. Then the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, also known as SAMHSA, um, helped with some people from New York, and they got it nationalized so that there's some sort of standard with the counseling, and then the counselors work with local officials on the ground in counties and states um, all over the United States, and that's manned 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and there's also now chatting online. If some people are too distraught to even call, they will text or chat somehow, about how to prevent suicide. Now, I don't know all the statistics on this, but let's just say this. We've all anecdotally at least can say on some level, somebody who was suicidal called that line and didn't kill themselves. That impacted our community. And for those cynics out there, it impacted the economy because that person can still work and contribute in some way. It also uh, helps us all as a heart in a heart space because when somebody commits suicide, It really existentially tears people apart and also mentally, psychologically, spiritually really messes with people. And a lot of people never really recover when a loved one commits suicide. And so in that same way, there's also a domestic violence hotline. Uh, The National Domestic Violence Hotline is for victims of domestic violence primarily. Um, That's what it's advertised for, for people that are in a relationship where they're being beaten or sexually assaulted, or just emotionally abused and gaslighted daily, they can call and get help anonymously and free. So what we've seen here is in the news, and this has been going on my entire life, this is not just news since Columbine. There has been shootings at workplaces and different uh, anonymous shootings going back in, even into the 50s and before, But uh, I'm not even going to get into the whole gun debate. That's not what this is about. This hotline could be for any type of violence. Domestic violence, shootings, school place, bullying, and I'll get to all that. But this is the difference. This hotline is trying to reach people that will potentially be violent or could potentially become violent and help de-escalate them to a point where they're willing to either put down their fist, their knife, their bat, their gun, or even further, possibly connect them to get help from a mentor, from a local community resource, from a counselor, from a psychiatrist, or whoever that they would be willing to engage with. Um, It's not a foolproof solution. There are plenty of people that will never call this hotline and never even care about it. That's fine, but we're trying to reach those people preventatively that we can. I've also thought about advertising this uh, on the internet to come up as an ad on Google or YouTube or Facebook for people that are already researching violent methods or joining violent uh, groups on the internet to maybe try to reach people with there is a different solution for your economic problem, for your anger, for your breakup, whatever it is for your problem with your relationship. So, here's my proposal. We need a National Violence Prevention Hotline in the United States. Violence impacts millions of people each year. That is indisputable. Go for it, statistics people. A great deal of this violence is preventable. The issue is that we don't know who, where, why, and how to prevent it all. It's impossible to police it all. So, this hotline, the National Violence Prevention Hotline, Would provide free, confidential, expert support for people in distress and feeling compelled toward committing acts of violence in the near future or just in the far future, whatever. It may also provide a lifeline for victims who have not yet called the police and are seeking counsel regarding their situation. So, the main purpose would be to try to reach people that are angry or upset and distraught and don't know what to do and feel like they want to get revenge or they want to hurt someone. And there is a way they can do that. I do not know all the legal ramifications of this with the duty to warn law. I'm not a lawyer. I'm hoping a lawyer will join me in trying to launch this. Um, but I do know that this could de-escalate a lot of situations. Uh, because right now we have we have phone lines for the victims. We have the domestic violence you know, for the victims. That's great. We have people that are thinking about killing themselves. That's great. We don't have a line for people thinking about killing other people or killing uh, random people, or even hurting people. So, this is what this line would do. And of course, other people who are, haven't pr- reported to the police yet that they're victims of violence could get resources as a secondary uh, function of the line. Like the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, the National Violence Prevention Hotline seeks to staff professional counselors to take calls from people who are in distress. The difference is that the Violence Prevention Hotline will attempt to reach and work with people who are contemplating violent acts against others. The National Violence Prevention Hotline will also work with victims of violence to provide safe professional referrals, confidential education in order to reduce the incidence of violence and its harmful effects on people and communities. So, violence, as we know, can impact anyone. And if you've ever been around a fight or a violent act, it can be devastating. The results of people getting shot or getting punched or getting injured are just devastating because they're long-lasting and they can impact families, loved ones, businesses, communities, schools, and the list goes on. Everyone gets angry. It's a natural human state, and I've talked about this many times in my podcast, but they don't know what to do with their anger, so they displace it or they project it or they put it on others Or they come up with a narrative that says these people are against me and this is the cause of my pain, so therefore I've got to take out my anger on this group or these people that represent this group. Some people need more help than others to de-escalate violent tendencies. This is true. I'm sure there's research on this. I'm sure there's brain scans on this. The National Violence Prevention Hotline would help people struggling with compulsions towards committing acts of violence and those threatened by violence. Now these are some things I came up with. I'm sure there's more. Uh, Lone wolf shooters. The news stories are all the same. No one knew that that person thought that they were capable of this type of act, and no one knew that this was going to happen. If there was a line that somebody could call when they were distressed and contemplating a lone wolf attack, there might be a chance at lessening this awful outcome. Now, obviously, I said a chance. There's plenty of people that are dead set on committing violent acts that will not be stopped. That's why we have the police. That's why we have the FBI. All of that. That's why we hopefully have communities and nosy neighbors that when somebody's giving off red flags, will come and talk to that person. Okay, But for some person who's isolated on the internet, thinking of ways to get revenge at their workplace or against their school or whatever, perhaps they might find this hotline and get some help. That's a possibility. This hotline doesn't exist. Bullying behaviors. Oftentimes, People who are bullying have emotional issues that they are not dealing with, and thus they project their pain outward. If someone is bullying others, they could call and get help before it's too late. The reason I say that is because a lot of bullies don't know where to turn. There's no hotline for bullies, but there's a bunch of bullying programs in school, and maybe there's some schools that have stuff for the perpetrators of bullying, but I know, for instance, People that are victims of bullying are encouraged to go to the principal or the superintendent at the school, and especially if you work in a business, the human resources department. But what I want to know is where is the encouragement for the perpetrators to go, the perpetrators of the bullying to go to? Now, usually they're told to go to the EAP program if it's at a workplace, or they're suspended or something if it's a school. Workplace violence. Sometimes people feel like there is no one to turn to. They can't turn to their manager, they can't turn to their coworkers. they can't turn to their friends, they can't even turn to human resources. Or something happens and they lose their job, and they feel like, I need to get back at this workplace. The National Violence Prevention Hotline could prevent those contemplating violence in their workplace from following through if that person could get help and resources, and possibly even an advocate to help them with the job situation. Domestic Violence They already have a hotline for the victims, and I've heard that sometimes perpetrators are encouraged to get help as well. However, regardless, over 10 million people are directly affected by domestic violence each year in the United States. Those statistics are out there. You can read that. If there was a line for the abusive partners to call or they could get help, these numbers may decrease. Revenge Scenarios Getting revenge is ancient and pervasive in the earliest human stories and myths of our cultures and other cultures. Getting revenge, or quote-unquote the myth of redemptive violence, never satisfies the perpetrator. It just brings more pain. Hope for those contemplating violent revenge is just a call away with this hotline. And as you've probably seen in the news, a lot of times people will get revenge by killing somebody or injuring them, and then they'll commit suicide. Uh, or a domestic violence situation is a murder-suicide. Somebody kills their partner and then they kill themselves. So uh, this would be reaching those people that are in that state. Gang violence. When one is in a gang, they may believe there is no way out and they have to continue to follow orders and commit acts of violence. There may be no one or any help where they live in their neighborhood. The National Violence Prevention Hotline would give them a chance to stop the cycle by making an anonymous phone call. School Violence If someone is contemplating violence at school, it is likely that they are going to keep this a secret from school administrators, their peers, and even their parents. The National Violence Prevention Hotline will give them the support they need to ask for help in an anonymous fashion. Relationship Violence Similar to domestic violence, relationship violence can take many forms. Whatever the case, the National Violence Prevention Hotline will be available 24/7 to take calls from those compelled toward violent acts in their relationship. And that could be just many different things. Maybe it's a friend or a cousin or whatever, and it's or a roommate or a, an apartment mate or whatever. It doesn't even have to be a domestic violence situation where you're living together. Relationship violence is also pervasive. Sexual abuse while there is ample help for the help to help the survivors of sexual abuse i and there are services for perpetrators especially once they get caught or they're on some sort of list, the National Violence Prevention Hotline would offer a bridge for those contemplating sexual abuse against others and act as a preventative bridge to help them seek appropriate professional help. Now, I don't think that we're going to get a large number of people calling the line on that, but you never know having an anonymous line for people and saying, hey, if you're contemplating doing this sort of thing, there's help. Don't do it. Because I can see a lot of these people are hiding, they're they're doing this sort of, they're contemplating this sort of thing, they're having these fantasies, and they're all shameful about it, and they're not going to reach out to your regular counselor, they're not going to walk in and say, hey, I'm thinking about, you know, committing sexual abuse against somebody. Well, as you probably know, there's a duty to warn component when it comes to counseling, that if somebody's telling you about committing sexual abuse or wanting to commit sexual abuse, you have to report that to the authorities. So, But having an anonymous hotline where people can call in may dissuade a few people from committing such acts. The last component I thought about was victims of violence. The National Violence Prevention Hotline would provide education, resources, and a listening ear to those who may be victims of violence, but who have not yet reached out to the proper authorities or found a way to escape the violence in their life. That would just be a way for people who are afraid of calling the police and don't know what to do to call in. Now, I know the domestic violence hotline already kind of has that covered, but they aren't talking about relationship violence, sexual abuse, school violence, gang violence, people that are in different situations or uh, are being hurt by others. Um, Where is their place to call? So that would be one of the functions of the line, though not the main function. So let's talk about some of the highlights. Obviously, the Violence Prevention Hotline does not exist yet. I think it should. Here's some highlights. Violence is happening all of the time. Look up the statistics. So we would have 24-7 staffing, 365 days a year, with a kind professional on the line to staff these calls who's trained and knows what to do in all these situations to answer the phone calls from people that are in distress, they're escalated, they're upset, they're thinking that violence is the answer to their problem. We would use existing resources. The National Suicide Prevention Lifeline already trains staff counselors and occasionally receives phone calls from those contemplating violence or victims of violence. What I'm thinking is, why don't we join this line to be a different line, but staff it with existing call centers who already are trained to de-escalate people in crisis? They may just need more training about how to deal with people that are considering violence. Expert training. While there is an overlap between suicide prevention and violence prevention in terms of de escalation, they are very different presentations. So the staff would be trained in the nuances of when people are angry and instead of thinking about harming themselves, they're contemplating, my only way is to project my pain outward, to push that onto others to get rid of this feeling. That's the fantasy. That they may be feeling that by committing violence, they'll get revenge. They'll finally get that person will get what they're at, what they're, you know, they deserve. They're taking justice into their own hands or whatever, putting it out there. And what we see is that oftentimes this person does not feel better after committing an act of revenge. Um, They're just more adding violence to the cycle. A lot of times you'll see in domestic violence situations a murder-suicide. So somebody murders somebody who's been, quote-unquote, they think causing them pain or whatever, then they kill themselves because there's no satisfaction in that. Um, That violence is not the answer to any problem. I'm hoping to leverage relationships in creating this National Violence Prevention Hotline. So... We're looking for your support and your voice and your connections and your networking. We are not asking for your money. I believe that this is probably going to be either publicly funded or some sort of philanthropic grant to fund such a thing. So if you think this is important, lend your voice. Go to our website right now, violencepreventionhotline.org, and sign my petition that I made at change.org about the National Violence Prevention Hotline is Needed in the United States of America. And by doing this, you're going to be a small part of helping launch this, but you can be a big part because maybe you know people with political clout. Maybe you know people in different police departments. Maybe you know people who are business leaders or thought leaders that could join this cause and help promote this far better than me, who is recording this podcast in the guest bedroom of his house. I have podcasting equipment that I bought. This is a volunteer activity I do. I thought of this, and I've had some helpers along the way, um, which I will talk about towards the end. But essentially, this is being launched without a marketing campaign or any sort of uh, clout in the community or voice. This is my voice, this podcast. A vision for the National Violence Prevention Hotline. This hotline would operate similarly or alongside the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. Since the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline already has several resources, including call centers, relationships with local hospitals and mental health centers, emergency services, and a network of trained counselors standing by 24 hours a day, seven days a week, it would only make sense that the National Violence Prevention Hotline would be an extension of that organization and that we could utilize the relationships that the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline has already created and not start from scratch. We would already have people that have connections to local police departments, hospitals, crisis centers, mental health centers, and we could work and utilize that to help with the people that are thinking about hurting others. The urge to use violence toward others has different elements than the urge to commit suicide. Thus, the clinicians who are staffing the hotline would have to be trained on anger, understanding it, understanding violence and revenge, understanding power dynamics, the motivations for violence, and be able to maintain a high degree of empathy for the people calling in. Because it's easy, I think, a lot easier to have empathy for somebody who is thinking about killing themselves. You think, oh my gosh, think about their friends, think about their family, think about the loss of their potential, of their life, what they're doing. But it's really difficult to have empathy or a high degree for empathy for people that are calling in thinking about committing violent acts i can see most of us saying what are you thinking why would you do this you're completely out of it you're this is wrong you're crazy labeling putting out there we're upset by this choice they are suffering they are suffering people in some way and they are choosing an unpopular choice of what to do with their pain um this is this is A reality in our world is that people, instead of hurting themselves or going to do something productive or make a solution to their problem, they decide that violence is the answer for very many reasons that we could go into. There's probably books written on this, Um, but it's, it's a thing that happens and I think we need to be prepared for it and provide a hotline to help people who would at least possibly think about doing something else. The counselors would have to be experts in dealing with people in crisis, be able to establish rapport and potentially de-escalate a person calling in who may be very angry or desperate and talking about committing horrendous, violent acts towards others. The counselors would also utilize relationships with local crisis emergency services related to where the caller is coming from to help save lives and get medical help on the ground. I don't know all the legal implications of this. I do know... Uh, There's a duty to warn component. If somebody tells a trained counselor that they are thinking about committing violence and they are specific about who they're committing violence uh, or who they want to commit violence against, there's a duty to warn that person and possibly contact the authorities as well. And so I'm not a lawyer, but I think that I would definitely need a group of lawyers to figure out when does the person on the line need to trace the phone call or figure out what's going on and send police help immediately? And when is it just somebody calling because they're generally thinking of violence and generally upset at some person or some job or or their uh, relationship partner? Okay. Uh, th- but there will be a lot of training needed to be done. So, the National Suicide prevention lifeline, some of the workers may not be a good fit for the National Violence Prevention Hotline, while others would be able to be trained um, in how to deal with people that are potentially contemplating violence and move into a role there. I was just thinking, what if there's already, let's say there's 30 people on staff in a National Suicide Prevention Hotline call center, why don't we just add two or three people who are dedicated to the National Violence Prevention Hotline per call center? That would be a cost-saving measure. So, I'm asking for a grant from the SAMHSA, the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, to help cover the cost of development. I mean, that's my first guess. That's who's in, who's helping the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline. That's how they helped get it nationalized. So I thought, I thought, why wouldn't they be part of this? It only makes sense. Seems logical to me. Uh, but I'm also asking for corporations, philanthropic individuals who are you know have resources, and government help to help make the National Violence Prevention Hotline a reality. I'm asking for people of influence who have a platform, celebrities, different people, to make their voices known and help publicize the need for the National Violence Prevention Hotline prior to and after its launch. We are hoping to broadcast this message far and wide so that people who may be contemplating acts of violence will call in and get the help they need to make different decisions and have hope once again. So, it's... It's a dream right now. It's not a reality. And I think we all know that we have a a, a problem with violence. And we're in a place in 2018 where we need people to step up and help the people in our society and around the world, but let's just we're focusing on the United States right now that they may have economic problems. They may have relationship problems. They may have all sorts of job problems. They may have all sorts of mental health problems. They may have other problems that we don't know about but that violence is not the answer and not the solution to these problems. Everybody's talking about violence. There's violence in movies. There's all of these television shows talking about violence. There's violent video games, whatever. It's in our culture. Violence has always been a part of human culture since the beginning of human culture. So we now are in a different modern world landscape. And we have technology and tools to reach people and give people a line if they're not connecting face-to-face with other people who can help them remember who they are and that they might have a purpose in this world and that violence may not be the answer to their problem because it's actually not the answer to their problem. And so that is why, I don't know, this idea came to me to create this hotline because it's about prevention. We're spending so much money and time cleaning up the messes from people who felt lost or abandoned by society or who just didn't have the connection. We cannot prevent everything. We can't make a utopian society. But right now, there are people out there who may never decide to seek counseling or seek appropriate help or even get a mentor or even get into any type of relationship with somebody who's healthy and they right now could be inching towards escalating and committing violence whether they're planning it or whether they spontaneously erupt due to being upset or angry at somebody so this violence prevention hotline is a dream it's a dream to help reduce the impact of violence on people families and communities in the united states so i'm asking you for your help i'm not asking for money I'm asking you to lend your voice to supporting the cause. Go right now to violencepreventionhotline.org, read more, or go to change.org and search for the National Violence Prevention Hotline petition. I'm hoping to share this petition with the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, as well as government officials, business leaders, and other leaders in the United States, anyone who will listen. And you might think, well, who am I? What's my voice? Well, if you go sign the petition You have just lent your voice to numbers. We have numbers. We have thousands of people that have signed this. We have hundreds. We have millions, hopefully. I don't know. um, That could convince leaders that we should be spending money on prevention. I think, if I haven't said this before, it's not just the impact on communities in a personal level which destroys families and destroys people's lives and destroys businesses and destroys sometimes our mental health because mental health because we are so upset about all the violence around us. This is, of course, for the pragmatic American argument, a waste of our money. Something like this is going to cost millions of dollars to fund. But we are spending millions of dollars if some sort of economist put it into a spreadsheet. Every violent act or and every domestic violent act and every everything, if you could quantify that, and see the economic impact on work and production and, and value of, of this country on a monetary scale, you would see that spending a few millions of dollars a year to have a hotline to prevent some of the violence that's preventable is, is not only the right thing to do, it's economically viable. Instead of spending money on prisons and keeping people incarcerated who could have chosen another choice to do in their life besides committing acts of violence versus other people. So again, I don't think this is a cure-all. It's not a cure-all. It's just something that should be in place and it should be there. And I don't use that word should very often. But in a place where we're at as a country with with the, with the state of things, with the rapid change since the rise of the internet, which is a new medium, we're still learning how to deal with Um, with social upheaval, with economic upheaval that's going on, this is something that could help prevent pain in our community, in our country, the National Violence Prevention Hotline. So, we're about to go to the second half of the podcast. I I wanted to thank some people. I want to thank my wife, Dr. Nicole Kane, for supporting my idea and coming up with some... She's always engaging me in conversations about what about this? Or what about that? Um, and get coming up with very good ideas and, uh, things. So that helped me write a lot of this copy. Uh, my friend, Jesse Flores in Lansing, Michigan from super web pros, who is sponsoring for free, making me this webpage. Uh, Jesse also edited and questioned a lot of the content. So I rewrote a lot of what I wrote and helped out quite a bit. Um, and Anna Hobson, who is our marketing intern at the clinic, Health for Life, Grand Rapids, who made the video that you'll see on the website, national, uh, which is violencepreventionhotline.org. And with that, and I want to thank Mike Speakman, my mentor, who is an anger expert, who has been talking to me about anger and violence and other topics uh, for years and studying them and learning about them and how to help people and also how to prevent it. Uh, He was a big inspiration as well. And so, with that, uh, that's my spiel. I hope you like it. I hope you can take 30 seconds to go over to change.org and sign our petition, and maybe 30 more seconds to share this on social media or email it to people, uh, our website, or this podcast. Uh, This is Paul Krauss, the Intentional Clinician. Next up, I'm going to play the conversation that Mike and I had in Phoenix Arizona this spring 2018 talking about this concept but also more on a deep level on a human level and discussing the grief and the existential concerns of somebody contemplating violence and i hope you enjoy it thanks for listening this is paul kraus the intentional clinician podcast
1: is not a grade, but the briefness of the candle makes you much more precious days. Spencer, depression is lying to you. Because you
0: know you All right, listeners. So this is Paul Krauss of the Intentional Clinician here, and I wanted to bring in for this part of this episode a special guest, Mike Speakman. <clears throat> Welcome, Mike. Thank you. Mike Speakman is a licensed substance abuse counselor working in rehab centers since 1988. In 2006, Mike started a support group for parents called PAL, Parents of Addicted Loved Ones. PAL grew from the need to provide continued education and support, specifically tailored to help parents who are trying to save a son or daughter from drug addiction or alcoholism. Since that first meeting, PAL has grown to how many places now in Arizona? Well,
2: it's up to 27. Well, it's 22 in Arizona.
0: Okay. What do we got nationwide and right nationwide,
2: now? Nationwide, 27 other states.
0: Okay, so now you can know more at www.palgroup.org. Palgroup.org. And right now, are you currently still on staff at Calvary? Just very part-time there. Okay, and what do you do most of the time?
2: Most of the time, I'm in my private practice in life coaching, and what I do is I help parents uh, plan and learn skills to help an addicted uh, child.
0: Okay, excellent. And you might remember, Mike, from, I believe, episode four and five, or three and four, I'm not really quite sure, of The Intentional Clinician, when we had one episode about um, the rites of passage, uh, addiction, how to help children, how to help teens, how to help adult children and their parents. We had a whole episode of Mike, because Mike did write a book about that, which you can find at his website, which will be in the show notes. And then um, we had a whole episode on anger. Mm-hmm. And little known fact, Mike has a whole book about anger out, which you can order from his website exclusively, because this other these other books are on Amazon and other places. But um, this book is uh, available only on the website. Is that correct? The Anger Workbook?
2: Yes. Yes. And it's entitled The Healthy Expressions of Anger.
0: The Healthy Expressions of Anger, which is a fantastic book. And so part of the reason I wanted Mike on this part of the episode is that Mike is, in my opinion, an anger expert. Um, And Mike, can you tell us a little bit about um, how you became an anger expert?
2: Yes. When I first entered the field of substance abuse counseling in um, uh, 1988, working for Salvation Army, after about five years working there, they asked me to develop an anger management program. They didn't have one at the time. And i I did a lot of background studies and developed and fine-tuned an anger management program for the clients there, all adults, all adults, uh, addicts and alcoholics uh, in recovery. I developed a program there uh, and had about eight years to fine-tune it through experience of using it. And from that experience is where this workbook for the general public came, and uh, and it's an, it's an attempt to help people understand anger better, and then also see it can be used for positive, in a positive way, with education. And that's what the the workbook is about.
0: Right. And you even use this workbook in multiple prisons and jails all over the West Coast. Is that true? Yes.
2: There's a form of it called SMARTS training uh, that is being used in, uh, in several jails and prisons across the country. And uh, there was a time when I was uh, trying to market it uh, nationwide. And just couldn't get any traction with that. So I kind of put it on the back burner.
0: Absolutely. And there's been a huge demand for the work um, around children and adult children and substance abuse and their parents. So I know that your time has been taken up a lot with that. And you and I were working on trying to get that program um, put into prisons and jails to help educate the prisoners and also the guards and everybody about anger and how it can actually be used for your benefit and how to work on different skills. And it's quite, it's a fantastic book. So,
2: yeah. Well, thank you.
0: So uh, that's why I brought Mike on the show um, this time. And he was, he's been a mentor to me about the anger topic for a long time. And anger is a big part of what we're talking about because in this episode, I've already unveiled my idea for a violence prevention hotline, or what I would call the National Violence Prevention Hotline, very similar to the National Suicide Hotline or the National Suicide Helpline. And uh, there's a lot of reasons that we would like to talk about this. So Mike and I were talking – I'm going to talk a little bit about the idea. So the idea came to me uh, in November of 2017. I was sitting in the barber's chair, and I don't know, just in my head, I was just thinking, and all of a sudden – this sort of whole thought chunk came into my brain out of the, just out of the ether saying, why don't you suggest creating a national violence prevention hotline? And I was thinking, what? So I went home and I looked it up and I couldn't find anything on it. I saw a domestic violence hotline, um, which is for usually uh, people abuse victims. But I think there's a little bit about if I'm a domestic violence person, uh, if I've done it, I can also get help through that hotline. Um, but it's not; it's mostly for victims, from what I can tell. And then there's, of course, the uh, National uh, Suicide Prevention Hotline, which is operated now in, I believe, all 50 states, and it's been going on since around 2005 as a national thing through the SAMHSA grant, uh, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration. It's a federal thing. Before that, the crisis lines were more isolated in different counties and different districts. And before that... I've looked up the history of this, you can read about it, the history of crisis lines. There was crisis lines all over. And there's still different crisis lines. I know here in Arizona and I know in Michigan, there's different little networks of crisis lines, some of which are patched into the National Suicide Prevention Hotline and some which are not. And so this, this thought came to me and I kept searching on Google for this violence prevention hotline and I couldn't find one. So I thought, okay, let's buy this website and let's start typing up something because I'm just some counselor in Grand Rapids, Michigan, who comes down to Arizona every year. I don't have much cloud or much power, and I want to get this thing launched. But I think there's going to be a lot of questions about why would you propose such a thing? And will this, could this even prevent any violence, domestic violence, um, uh, people, you know, or gun violence, which has been in the news a lot for the past, since 1999, when Columbine happened, I think it's been kind of a big topic since then. Um, and so Mike and I were discussing this. And and part of the reason it came into my head was I had heard a story, I believe on the Rich Roll podcast, he was talking about, and I don't know if this story is apocryphal or not, but he was talking with a guest who said that there was a would-be school shooter, I believe in Florida, actually. And the guy had come into the school and had his guns, um, you know, brandishing his weapons. And he came up to the school secretary and she did something I'm not exactly sure what, but just pleaded with him and said, you know what? I'm so sorry. You're angry. I know people have hurt you. Um, I, I just, I'm just, i just pleading with you. Don't do this. Looking in his eyes and the man hesitated, put down his guns and said, please call the police. I don't want to do anything. I, I need help because I feel like I I must. Like he, I don't exactly know the quote, but something, I need help. I feel like I can't control myself or something like that and I need to be put away. And so I believe he was hospitalized and I don't really know the follow up on it, but he didn't shoot anybody. He didn't shoot up the school and he was hospitalized, got the psychiatric help he needed. And, you know, as I, and then he was able to, I believe, return to functioning. And I don't, I think he probably had some sort of probation because you can't bring guns into school, but he didn't act on it. And so that got me thinking, you know, we, we focus a lot on, you know, what happens in the community and to the people, and we're also, there's lots of political arguments going on between different sides here in this sort of dichotomous fashion of, should we just ban all guns, or should we uh, ban assault rifles, or should we raise the la- uh, age of one? And, and so I'm thinking, okay, that's all well and good, but that's not my wheelhouse. What about these people that are out there, that are stressed out, that are angry, that are... Um, Uh, possibly, you know, have had trauma in their life, they have unresolved issues going on, and they think that, you know, uh, instead of wanting to kill myself when I'm upset or depressed or angry, I, I need to take this out on other people. And they start believing this, and they start rationalizing this, they start isolating, and then they come up with a plan. Or maybe just a guy or a woman who's in a relationship with somebody, a significant other, and they think they've taken everything, they've broken up with me, and now I'm going to go have revenge. And revenge is an ancient concept. I mean, we've seen Israel and Palestine fighting for thousands of years. You did this to us, tit for tat. Uh, I think revenge is part of being a human it's it's an impulse uh, and so I wanted to say like w- you know where is the hotline for these people when they get so agitated and so irritated and so convinced that the only way out is to is to commit violence? What are they going to call the national suicide hotline? They're not suicidal, and a lot of them wouldn't seek mental health help or accounts or some sort of other help, and they're not going to probably turn themselves into the police so what if there was a line that they could call and get some sort of validation for their anger, but also learn that there's other ways to deal with it. So, Mike, um, tell me your thoughts.
2: Yes, uh, it's interesting because I have some historical experiences. Um, for instance, in the '70s, before I got into uh, into this field, uh, I was working at Motorola. That was one of the jobs I had, and um, I had went to a crisis hotline as a volunteer. I was just interested to find out. And uh, it was called the TELUS hotline and it was in Tempe, Arizona. And uh, it was short-lived because of funding, but for about four or five months, I volunteered once uh, once a week uh, for several hours. We had different shifts and different people volunteering. But the majority of our calls, it was called the TELUS crisis hotline. The majority of our calls were young people and um, they were not necessarily suicidal. Some of them were, but the majority of them were just really upset and uh, more often homicidal. I would say
1: mm.
2: that, and and so they could express. And we were taught to listen, and to uh, and to uh, be supportive of them as far as uh, l- listening and understanding. And we were also taught to not try and tell them what to do. Mm. So there were special skills that we could call Rogerian based on the work of Carl Rogers yes. in psychology. And, uh, and I really saw how that helped. We were not given specific answers, but we were listening. And they were able to vent. And what I really felt was happening is they were reducing the level of their stress mm-hmm. just by being able to vent it uh, to a listening ear. And a lot of them were young men that That we're calling, and uh it was as if they could talk to somebody who there was going to be no repercussions. it was anonymous right, and that yet they could speak it out and get it out and so that was my uh my first experience and i didn't know that years later, because of my own personal issues uh, i would uh in, you know years later, I was in commercial real estate and married with two children and uh, and my short version of my story is I was uh, living in my addictions, and, uh, and I so I, uh, when my wife left me, uh, of course, she left me because of alcohol and chasing and, and gambling, and she should have, uh, but after she left me, I felt this emotional, tremendous emotional pain, and uh, I uh, actually attempted suicide, and that would have been 1978, and I was 36 years old, and in that case... What I did was I closed my garage door, turned my car on, and just laid down, uh, probably for about three minutes. But it scared me, scared me enough to stand up and go turn off the car and go in and ask my sister for help. I had no idea that 10 years later I would be working in the field of uh, substance abuse counseling. But, uh, But I had that experience. And so with that experience, it helped me understand a lot of people who came to me uh, in for, for recovery at the treatment center that Salvation Army uh, was running in Phoenix, that I could uh, relate to them uh, based on my own experiences. And one of the things I began to, uh, and of course that was uh, where I uh, also started the, uh, the anger management program mm-hmm. that they asked me to do. But one of the things I noticed was this correlation of, of grief and loss. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, at the time I had no understanding, but looking back, when my wife left me, I uh, had two children. And I, they didn't really leave me, but they went to live with her. Uh, I left the house, and she, she got the house, and the, and the children lived there. It felt like I was losing my children, even though legally I wasn't. Uh, we had, we had joint uh, custody. But I felt like I was losing my marriage, my wife, my children. It actually, looking back, it felt like I lost everything.
0: Yes. I mean, in that moment of being so stressed. It
2: did, and I had no right. inner I had no inner resources. I had no external resources of help, of friends of uh, counseling or anything like that my whole life. And so uh, it it felt like uh, I had no more reason to live because my life was gone. right? Now, of course, I could not I would not have been able to speak that at that time. I was just at—I was just at the effect of the emotions, and uh, and so I, the, looking back, the reason that I that I wanted to die wasn't because I really didn't want to live anymore. It's that I could not live with that source of pain, right? But I also remember thoughts of of uh, of revenge, mm. of mm-hmm. uh, getting even with her, getting even with her new boyfriend since the divorce, right? Uh, those crossed my mind. But uh, I think the reason that I did acted out violence toward myself versus violence against her is because I could not really uh, justify blaming totally her. It was really me. Right. It was my addictions. It was my uh, you know what I was doing with my life, and and that was so clear. So I I really believe uh, in hindsight. I was acting out self violence self-violence.
0: because you, when you were thirty six too, so your your brain development was at a point where you were a bit more in the adulthood. Exactly,
2: I would have liked versus to, a
0: younger person who doesn't yeah. who might believe something else. Yes, who I might w- not take responsibility. I would have
2: liked to believe uh, to to believe that it was all on her and blah blah blah. but sure. the history said differently. I'm the one who was not at home at night drinking. I was right. the one chasing other women. I was the one gambling. I was the one not there for my kids. Sure, so that was there and it was kind of hard to deny that
0: right and so therefore then that's when the attempt came in before and then before you got into counseling because it was almost like a we know from neuroscience and we know from the mindfulness studies is that when people are very very stressed for a long period of time and they have grief and loss or perceived grief and loss or they go through a traumatic experience or many other things can happen to them they can be driven into what's called dualistic thinking or binary thinking which is where it's either this or that it's either this or that. My options shrink. I that don't black see and white thinking. right. I don't yeah. see the future. I, yeah. I don't see the future as broad, and I have choices anymore. I see that I only have one choice: either to die or to live with this pain, or this misery, or this awful job, or this bad marriage, or this disease. Or whatever, and so there's that suicide element. But yeah. what we don't realize is, and we don't talk about maybe as a culture, is it's also perfectly normal in the literature to yeah. have homicidal thoughts, yes, uh, or to or think about violence of of blowing things up and getting even. And we see this all the time in our culture. There's a lot, you know, it, we're intrigued by violence. We're intrigued by MMA fights. We're intrigued by uh, who who punched a photographer that was chasing them in the paparazzi, and who 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 hit their partner. Yeah. Um, but we don't realize that that's just almost as normal as the suicide except the suicide. It's easier it almost is easier to have empathy on somebody who's suicidal cause It's like, oh my God, don't don't kill yourself. Think about all the people that will that will be affected by this and your community and, and people will lose hope and people will miss you and you could have turned this around. But it, it's harder to have empathy. For somebody who's going through maybe exactly what you went through, or maybe even just a perceived loss, like, you know what? I didn't get a job because of these people, right? And I'm angry now. Or somebody slighted me in my high school, and they don't have that brain development that you did where you were 36. And so they go, you know what? I'm blaming others. This is not my responsibility. I'm going to take out this violence on somebody to get the pain out of me. I
2: think one of the reasons for that... You know, in, mm-hmm. my, in my counseling training and, and in all the experience I've had over the last 30 years uh, working with recovering right. people. Uh, and I've noticed that the age of people entering treatment has gone way down from the middle 30s mm. now to the low 20s, right. average age coming into treatment. Uh, but one of the things that, that, that I think as you're talking, it made me uh, re- remind myself that if you think about children, they are not their own authority, Mm-hmm. So authority runs their world, and they, they manipulate authority to get needs met, which is natural and normal because they're not their own authority. Right. So suppose that they go past 18, which they get all the freedoms uh, of adulthood, but what if they haven't got the emotional part and the coping skills of adulthood?
0: They, don't, they, don't have, they have delayed emotional development. Exactly, which and is we,
2: something we, we train parents about to understand right. with, their, with their children with the drug and alcohol. Problems.
0: We discussed that at length in the first episode.
2: Absolutely. So what can happen then is I can be in my 30s and still blame authority because I have not accepted myself as my own authority.
0: Right, and I, it, right, and it's easier sometimes to blame others and kind of live this victim role Absolutely. or or rebel role. I, yep. I, it's me versus you, and you know, and what I've been, you know, have you ever read Joseph Campbell? Yes. So he talks a lot about how, you know, all these different tribes and myths. How for the men, it was actually more difficult to have this rite of passage. But for women, women are much more closer to their bodies, closer to nature, because they start their menses cycle, you know, when they're in their early teens or depending on the person. And then they're reminded every month, okay, hey, like I'm becoming a woman now. Whereas a man, the, w- w- the tribes usually would do some sort of ceremony to initiate the man with a trial, a problem, Absolutely. something to humble him, something yep. to break him, something to say, You're mortal. You don't get to be egocentric anymore like a child. You're going to be either killed or you need to grow up and be responsible and protect the village.
2: But also along with that, we don't right. want to forget the other, that's very true. Sure. Along with that is they found they find strengths within them that could be found no other way.
0: Oh, correct. Well, right. By putting them through point. the trial, yeah. then in a, in a way, it's not just a ceremony. It's also... Uh, some sort of journey that they must oh, yeah. go through to transform, and you transform through pain. You know, they say, "No pain, no gain."
2: Well, it's not in the gym; pain. it's not just right. pain, but it's in many cases. In many cases, it's they are away from being helped, so they have to rely on themselves. So
0: they're not running home to their mother or exactly, father. Exactly. They have to start dealing with things and on again, their own.
2: That's how they become their own authority, and they find a spiritual connection, typically in nature. That sure. way, so so that's what's missing in our culture.
0: Our culture doesn't have that rite of passage. No. So what happens when somebody has trauma or addiction or loss or grief, and or a you know job loss, or perhaps they are just tuning into certain media sources? There's media all over the internet. You can get of anything, any opinion, yeah. um, which is causing them to be more angry. They're, are they looking for a, a source or a lightning rod for their anger. Um, you can see this in small time with domestic violence, yeah. male or female or whoever they're, is angry against their partner and they blame them for their problems it's yep. called displacement right is it yep. called displacement yep. Yep. and and they or will projection. take it out and they'll beat the other person and they'll dominate them so they they feel that release because yep. they're not they're not dealing with taking responsibility for their own release and then in the large scale we're seeing um, larger acts of violence for whatever reason in our country yep. against civilians not against any sort of warring force or anyone who could fight back use now utilizing guns um is a common one though not the only one um and so and that the gun makes it possible because it's easy you know these people probably couldn't go ninja chop everybody they they they're you know not always that sophisticated so uh th- this show is not about guns, but it's about what is going on. Um, it it's, it seems to be a lot of males in the mass shootings. I'm not trying to pin out, pin down males. There has been a few females as well. But what what's going on? Like, you know, these people are getting into quote adulthood years without having gone through a trial. A lot of things are going wrong. They're confused. Then, you know, everybody's different. But can you shed a little light on this? Well, the
2: the main point that I want to there's so many different ways of looking at this issue, and it's it's complex and it's and it's it's sometimes overly complicated. Uh, you know, through clinical ways of looking at things. Sure. But the key thing that I wanted to mention is that's not obvious to us as a culture, is that grief and loss is really the, the sort of the engine that that drives the, the violence, whether it's against myself in suicide or whether it's against someone else because I'm blaming them uh, for, for taking away my life.
1: Uh, that's okay, the yes. engine. Yes.
2: Now, anger is the gasoline. So, right. yes, you could argue, if we take away the anger, there's no violence. Sure but, but, yet, an, right. but yet, if we think it's the cause of anger, then we're missing the point.
0: Anger's just the energy.
2: Anger's the energy I use right. and and so I, I, I'm misusing it, and that's the, that's the challenge that's going on. Um, so I, I think that's what I want to get across because it's not obvious to us that and when we see a school shooter. In a way, his, what he's saying, if we look at who he's shooting, it gives us some clues.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, so if they target uh, students, that's saying right. one thing. If they target uh, uh, you know, the, the teachers, that's another. Teachers. If they target everybody, then they're mad at the world. Sure. So that we can get some input just from looking at, at that. But if you think about the message, here's a potential way of looking at the message of the child. You, the world, God. Authority, the universe, the sure. universe, what, whatever, the man, you know, man, you know, sure. this society, this culture, this world, whatever. You took away my life. I have nothing to live for. I have nothing to lose because I have nothing, and I'm blaming you. So now, there's where the anger comes in, right? There's are the because it's unfair,
0: and oh, and it's also the stages of grief are yep. usually um, what denial. Yep. And then um usually what anger second?
2: Well, or? there's there's de- there's there's denial first and then right. bargaining.
0: Bargaining. Why and, does this have to happen? And the
2: bargaining's not working, not so, working. I so I get angry. So
0: get angry. And then if people continue through, then we go into a depression
2: usually. There's a, there's a depression which is like the anger sort of working its way through inward. Right,
0: cuz the anger's the top usually, the depression's the bottom. Yeah. Not always, but And, and then, then finally acceptance.
2: If, if I, yes. I can get to acceptance if I get out of my own head alone and am willing to ask for help
0: and i'm getting help and it's easier exactly. if somebody dies because yep. you, you know we sometimes we, we not always easier but we have a we have people around us to help us guide through the grief process exactly. but if we have perceived grief and loss meaning that because so and so broke up with me or because the school expelled me or because my job fired me yep. or because this not only is this shameful to me but now I'm putting this as some sort of, I'm rationalizing this into some sort of larger sense because of the stress I'm going uh, undergoing or whatever, yeah. Yeah. I'm rationalizing this, you took away something from me. Yeah. You took away my life. You took away my livelihood. You took away my relationship. And then I'm externalizing it and I'm getting stuck in the grief and loss, yeah. past the shock, past the bargaining, and it's becoming bigger. So I'm stuck in the anger phase. Yeah. And the anger is the gasoline, yeah. though the grief and loss could be the engine. Exactly. Or the perception of grief and loss, depending on the person.
2: Exactly. So um, there's a lot of things going on here, but it's pointing out some misunderstandings in our culture. It's pointing out some invisible processes that are going on that we don't notice. Sure. But the major point here is I'm not going to throw away my life by killing other people. Mm-hmm. It's, it's actually a kind of form of suicide to go kill others, sure, in a way. But I'm not going to do that if I have the hope for a better life. Right. So now we bring in the word hope here. Right. So when I have the hope for a better life, even if it's not much hope, Right. Uh, I, there's something I can do. I still have hope. But, and again, this relates to my own personal story, uh, because I was feeling hopeless. Now, why was I feeling hopeless? This came out in my counseling. So my, right. my recovery came through counseling. And through counseling, I got a lot of self awareness. Oh, this is, I had counseling over quite a few years. Well, I was financially independent at that point. So money was not the issue. So I didn't right. have to worry about a job.
0: But food it, or clothing or anything. Housing. I, had were, every, I had the American dream. This is a dream. higher level issue.
2: I had the American dream, and there I was right. suicidal. Go figure it out. Right. So looking back, what happened is I didn't notice it, and I wouldn't have been able to say it. Right. That my wife was. Uh, I had made my marriage, my wife, my children. I had made them my life. So then you can understand. Then if she's leaving, and that, and it felt like the, the, I'm losing the kids as well, I'm losing my life. Well, well, wait a minute. Well, you had other family, yes. You had still had work. You could still work even though you didn't need to. Uh, I was a commercial real estate broker. You know, you still had friends, didn't you? Well, <laughs> yeah, kind of. Uh, so but but the reality was that uh, that that all of that didn't really matter to me uh, so So now it comes in the concept of the life I was living was very uh, one-sided, it was very unbalanced, and so that came out in counseling as well. So how many people might be, and when you're young? Uh, you might make uh, your friends your life. You might make your parents your life. You might, right. you know, however, you might make a girlfriend or boyfriend your life. And then, so...
0: Uh, so there's our narrative and identity.
2: There's our identity and, identity. and if our
0: aden- narrative or identity. if our narrative goes off a cliff and we can't see the next chapter and our identity gets screwed it, by something, even our own doing, we can be very stressed out and it, liable to do something.
2: Exactly. So the key words to me to keep us on track, because there's a lot of different ways... Uh, And we're going here to try and understand this is if my loss is so great that I'm willing to lose my life over it, Mm -hmm. that loss was so great that I don't have a life anyway. You see, so that's the equation going on in the brain. Uh, that's so the it's equation. like almost
0: a subconscious thing. I, exactly. I don't even have a life to live, so what's the point? So either I take myself out or I take other people with me who did this to me.
2: Exactly. So early on, right. when when my counselor asked me, Mike, as you look forward in your life, this counselor helped me really save my life. Right. Uh, but I had to have that experience, which is kind of a trial of losing my wife and kids, to where I had the... Uh, the the pain, the emotional pain in my the heartbreak. Mm -hmm. That's what I call it, the heartbreak. Um, To try suicide, which then scared me (laughs) that I was really willing to do that, which then uh, led me to to finally ask for help and receive help. And so the counselor was helping me understand myself, self-awareness.
0: Right, and self-awareness is key.
2: It was because I had all these feelings. I had no no understanding. So he was teaching me to understand my feelings while at the same time help me understand my life. So it took a while but early on he said as you look forward in your life without your wife what do you see and i said nothing mm. so i mm-hmm. so in other words i had no future life well what i learned later was that the vision in our mind for a better life we all have that sure but we also have at the same time a vision for a worse life <laughs> <laughs>
0: that's true you know so
2: so we do and what i learned was when there's enough stress and and uh, going on then you may not be able to see, and that's where I was. I couldn't see the possibility of a better life, but I could see the possibility of the life I could not live in that I did not want to have. And this is what I learned. It never goes away. Hmm. So when you lose that vision, and so, so there's a combination of hopelessness here, mm-hmm. grief and loss, right, and, and, and lack of getting help for that or motivation to get help or motivation to talk about it, and and I was a really good example of that at, at age thirty six.
0: And I'd like to, and I really appreciate you sharing that example. I'd like to throw in today's crisis, yeah. Which is, uh, let's add a few more elements to what the whole thing you just said. I'm going to add in, yeah, uh, possibly delayed emotional growth, yeah, possible trauma from somebody's parents or situation, yeah, uh, uh, possible bullying, possible yeah. um, technology addiction issues, or yeah. um, possible. Uh, You know, you can get the great great and terrible thing about the internet is you can get a podcast or a video on any sort of mood you're looking for. Yeah. Hey, Mike, I want to be calm. Okay, I'm going to go look up 25 calm podcasts, 25 calm YouTube videos. I'm going to go on uh, all these digital sources. I'm going to read calm blogs. Hey, Mike, I'm angry. Yeah. And I'm looking for a target. Yeah. I'm going to find these angry podcasts. I'm going to find angry YouTube videos. I'm going to find angry news articles, which may or may not be credible sources. Yeah. So I can feed myself whatever I want, especially with the internet. If if I have availability, if I have access to the internet, which most people do, but we don't have a, a large contingent of critical reasoning and, and and taking apart the internet. The internet's so new that it's almost like if we see it written, even though I can go buy a website today yeah. and write a whole false apocryphal biography of Mike Speakman and write all these ridiculous things yeah. about you and yeah. publish it, I mean, you could sue me, but somebody could read that and believe yeah. it because they don't have the discernment yet, especially young people, yeah. especially the young people who... Um, who can you know are, are grappling with a lot of big changes in our society? Technology has is still drastically shaping and an, an our society for everything from robotics and automation to cell phones, with everything access to the internet um, to other things going on. Our economy is changing. Our, our perceptions of who we are as Americans are changing. A lot of things are we don't know what's coming, and so I think there's a level of stress in this country. That is very high in the last ten years since mm-hmm. about 2008. I remember feeling like, "Ooh, this is feeling stressful." I don't remember it feeling this stressful before, and I was in my mid twenties and had been used to being an adult for you know eight years at that point. I don't I don't remember this level of stress and the workers and the people and the counseling um, clients I'm seeing. And so there's this huge combination. We can't com- possibly put it all out, but it's it's aiming towards. We've already seen you know jumps in suicide. Sure. Uh, We've already seen jumps in the opiate addiction, and now, I I don't know if, you know, I haven't read all the things to find out about violence going up, but at least these mass acts of violence seem to be getting publicized, and we know there's already been a violent, domestic violence epidemic going on for years, and so, essentially, what we're trying to do here is... We need to, we don't know what the solution is. There's so many psychological factors we discuss. There's personal factors. I even heard somebody, uh, there was an article a doctor wrote about how the mental health system can't stop this either, um, about how the mental health system can't stop entitlement and ignorance and different factors. Um, You know, these, you know, you can argue that people are mentally ill or not, that that doesn't matter. The point is that there's not, even if you bring somebody and try to, you know, you can get people hospitalized, it it might not be foolproof. Um, you know, people want to do all sorts of things. We wanna, but the point of this is, is this is a pragmatic approach that I'm trying to take and you've been endorsing with me, which is if we have a hotline, we're not going to save everybody. We right. have no delusions of that. But if we have a hotline that we know that when somebody's really angry and they're thinking about punching or hitting or cutting or shooting their significant other... That they could call and say, oh, my God, I'm thinking about, I'm making plans. I'm so angry. They ruined my life. They slept with somebody else. They, they took my money and ran, whatever it was. And I need help. I don't want to kill them. I don't want to injure them and be a felon, okay? Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't want to kill myself either, but I'm super angry. Yep. So what do I do about this? There's that hotline. Then we got this. You know, uh, people that are very angry about their work or very angry about their school, and they feel like, here, I, c- I can go. I can kill these people. You know, and I can get my revenge. Um, and they're thinking about it. I mean, I, I don't know how long people plot these things, but I'm assuming that a lot of them take at least a, a, a more than a few days to plot sure, a sure. bigger shooting. And we can see evidence of that in a lot of the police reports. And and so some of you know, we can't just label these people as everyone's a psychopath, everyone's a sociopath. Come on, that's just too. It's too. It's too simple to do that. Absolutely. And so and so, sure, maybe this Las Vegas shooter guy. He meets he meets psychopath, but and he didn't want help. And there's all these factors. Maybe he couldn't have been stopped or blah, blah, blah. He had this profile. He was a millionaire or whatever. But you know, there's so many other people that don't want to do this, but they feel compelled by the stress and the yeah. anger to take out violence. So if there's a hotline, they can call and say, Hey my gosh, I'm so angry. I don't know the legal implications. I mean, in some places, duty to warn, we may have to the police may have to be involved at some capacity, or, or involuntary hospitalization at some capacity. Yeah. However, what if there is? What if we stopped a third of these? With this, what if we stopped one of them? Would that yeah. be a success? Would that be worth the funding?
2: Absolutely. Now, we also want to keep in mind: there's an important point here. The reason revenge, the desire for revenge, is so strong, and, and it may actually be a, a a sort of a an instant sort of trigger that comes up in me or a, right. a thought that comes to my mind. But it does give me a benefit. If someone hurt, let's use an example here, if someone hurts you and you can hurt them back, right? it reduces the hurt you're carrying.
0: You believe it will.
2: And the reality is it will. It will for it a will. short time. It it's not for, a fix though. Yeah, no, but we, but we don't want to label it as it's totally useless or it wouldn't oh, be no. there. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, it's yeah. problematic, but it's natural human nature.
0: It's it's a human instinct, I yeah. believe.
2: So so how many people you know are still carrying resentments around towards people that have hurt them in their life? I mean tons. Everyone, everyone I know. Everyone you know. Okay. That's a form of revenge.
0: Sure. I'm, a I'm, in a of whole, revenge. I'm gonna hate yeah. them in my heart. So
2: once again I'm going back to the sense of loss thing. Right. The loss has to be so great. That it equals the loss of my life, and I have nothing to live for. That's why I'm willing to die. This is how I'm. Uh, this is how your process, and how, I like that because I think this it.
0: is a much more deeper discussion. So you, I mean, you know, we in the the media is doing a god awful job at explaining almost all of these. Um, not a, not all the media. I mean, well, that's they too men- broad. Too
2: they mention the loss, but they don't. They don't. They don't and again, it's, it's out of innocent ignorant. They don't know to, to evaluate. That. Even if we think about Dylan. Uh, Klebold and the the two ones who were the ones in the,
0: Columbine in Columbine, right.
2: those were sort of the famous ones. In, in, in we think about if you look at them, they were two young men who were gay, mm-hmm. and they were being picked on and bullied. But their parents mm-hmm. were not supportive of them as gay. Yes, I'm just throwing that out for a minute right. because now if you put yourself in their place, they're intelligent.
0: Right, and this people. is from the journals they found out they're gay, yeah, right? Yeah. yeah and okay. So
2: if you look at the, uh, if you look at, and this is all my understanding of of, sure. of of that story. If you look at them looking forward to a better future. Right. And they can't see one. Right. <laughs> it's just not possible. And then they get together and they, they sort of collaborate together. And how good is going to feel? A when, bond. Yeah, this bond. And so how, so they can accelerate each other. Right. You know, One person doing it alone is hard, but two together, they can really, uh, just like in a business, you can, you know, two working together can help each other. So it was kind of a unique situation to have those two, but they practiced, they enjoyed it. It was the anticipation of getting even and they shot everybody. So again, there's the clue, it's the world, the guy in Las Vegas, he shot everybody there again, it's the The world.
0: world. So Parkland, Florida, was it Parkland, Florida, the one that just happened? Yeah. You had a you researched a little bit, not too much, but you, well, it's you talked normal, about just normal. You read in the, the news. newspaper. What yeah, did you and you news. told me what?
2: Yeah, that that this this uh, man uh, he was, his dad had died years, many years ago.
0: Right. So we're missing uh, a father figure, perhaps.
2: Missing a father figure. Now, he may or may not have been adopted, so this may have been their adopted parents. I'm not sure. Sure. But the dad died, and then in November of last year, the mom died. Mm -hmm. So we can then say, well, there's tremendous loss right there. Right. But we don't know all the other uh, We don't know all the details. We don't need to know, but we can postulate and take into account. If we could get them to talk about their loss, Sure. then we're back to what I experienced on that hotline uh, so many years ago, that just talking about it and having someone listen, and and what I mean by uh, listen and understanding is not judging, not telling them that's wrong, not telling them what to do. They already
0: know it's wrong.
2: Yeah, exactly. They they so, just are angry. So this training, and you see how hard it is for parents to abdicate their authority of of not saying to tell their chil- children what's right and wrong. Oh, they yeah. have to. So this is problematic for parents. To try, they're the they're they're in the worst possible position to help a son who is suicidal or homicidal well, and just by nature.
0: Absolutely, and as you know um, from the research, recent research at Harvard um, about the study with the toys, where the kids had the three uh, had the the three different groups of kids and they were punished lightly, medium, and severe with a mm-hmm. label. If they played with this toy while the researchers and the parents were out of the room and then they took a survey weeks later, this toy was no better than all the other 25 toys in the room. And of course, the children that were punished more severely and moderately severely for playing with the toy or told not to, even if they didn't play with it, um, their rating of desire for that toy went up. Absolutely. So so, what is this That's telling the rebellious us? Factor. This, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So this is normal. The, uh, yeah. Life is full of uh, opposites. Yeah. When you when you push one way, then there's a push back to the other. So yeah. you know, parents, we're working on how do you have that relationship, that deep, vulnerable relationship with your kid, and and how do you do that without just n- judging everything as right and wrong, and trusting that they have to learn that right and wrong. So many times, when I've worked with people that have, um, you know, used drugs or done some sort of crime, they know it's wrong. They're not. They're, they're not stupid. They know it's wrong. Yeah. They know it's against the law. They know that they quote shouldn't have done this. But this is when they finally sit in therapy. It's not about the right or wrong. It's about what their story and why and, and why they conceived or rationalized this was a good idea. And so we we do have a crisis. And I and I I'm not trying to pick on males, but we're both men. I think of young men in this country not. Knowing how to identify themselves, well, do, some, and and how do I identify? You know, if I do have a father, if I don't have a father, do I identify myself as hypermasculine, this sort of toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. or do I identify myself um, as not hypermasculine? What does that mean? Is there something in between? Where is a good example of that? And so there, and yeah. s- anyway, that,
2: I, I was going to say that's the issue with addiction. Uh, that I run into all the time and why I started a support group for parents is because 90% of, of addicts and alcoholics, regardless of their age, started using when they were a teenager. So then the evidence is such that they, sta- they stayed stuck in their adolescent um, mind because of the use of the drugs and alcohol. So even though they're growing intellectually and physically, they're still emotionally stunted, and we we use that term, delayed emotional growth. Well, so one of the challenges that that, that we're going to run into is adolescence is a time to find identity. Right. And if your identity is all tied up on what you have, a wife, children, a job, you know, uh, adulation from others, if you're sure. famous, whatever that is, then if that's your identity and you lose that, when you lose your identity, you lose your life. And so now we're getting back to when I've lost everything, I have nothing to live for. So the second book that I'm working on now is, because the first book was for parents of adult ad- addicts and alcoholics and how to help them. The second book, is, is in t- the working title is, uh, is uh, Advanced Parenting Skills for the Drug Age.
1: Oh, okay. And
2: basically, it's to teach parents to uh, fine tune their drugging their fine tune their uh, parenting skills. Uh, is, in essence, in adolescence, by telling their adolescent child, "I'm going to start treating you like an adult in training," mm-hmm. to to deal with that issue of no rite of passage. There's no one to blame that we don't have that sure. rite of passage. It's
0: just what it is.
2: It is what it is. But but recovery for many many years has been sort of the default. Write of passage into responsible adult living mm-hmm. for alcoholics and addicts. Now, sure. our culture is starting to pick up on this issue because it's like an invisible issue in our culture.
0: Well, this, it is an invisible issue, but the symptoms are clear. High use of drugs and, and now gun violence and other forms of violence. Yeah,
2: And so here's the thing about adolescents, three major things. Number one, they love to rebel. Oh, yeah. Number two, they don't have identity. They're trying to figure it out. Sure. And number three, they know everything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, so, that's the egocentrism so, we yeah. find in Erickson's research, right? E-
2: exactly. So, so now, you would have seen that in me at age 36. So looking back now, the work I'm doing, it's interesting because I can see that at 36, after my wake-up call and getting helped for self-awareness, if you had said, Mike, do you ever feel like a child inside? Hmm. then after uh education and, and counseling i would have said interesting question yeah i think i do prior to that here's what you would have heard from me right mike do you ever feel like a child inside are you kidding me look at this house Look at my wife and children. Uh, Look at my, there was my identity and my identity yes. was, you take away someone's identity, you take away their life.
0: So, and so, and we all have to go through different phases of identity. Yes. And so, you know, again, this National Violence Prevention Hotline is just because this, we have a crisis on our hands. We've yeah. got to do something pragmatic to at least reach out to people. Yeah. But and we're talking more about, now we're talking about the dynamics of what goes on in our culture a little bit. And so... Um, you know, one of the phases is that um, you know over your life, your your identity and your way of viewing yourself is going to change many different times, and your perceptions and your environment is going to change many times, and there's there's a tension there, um, especially because um, even though change is inevitable and all life is full of change, change is scary, and it's it's strange, and we and and, and we're not we're we're I don't know. I don't think we love it usually, unless we need to change. We feel that momentum to change, but there's, there's a resistance to change. And so, especially emotionally, um, you know, emotions especially are not a hot topic in in the male uh, uh, part of our culture. Emotions are not, are not a thing we're socialized to really care too much about. Um, uh, And so, Essentially, uh, we you know we take those out in other ways, and and it's not just the males. Again, I'm not trying to pick on males, but there's a lot of a lot of people that are committing mass acts of violence that are male, and so you know, and, and and again, you know, a lot of males are figuring out their own way, and there is no right, you know, perfect way. We just don't want to have this violence that we see in this way. Exactly. And, and so, uh, you know, I'm f- fine with boxing and MMA and all that, and, and wrestling and, and um, you know, hunting and fishing and all that, and, and ways to do that, and way, and rituals to, you know, uh, feel that, you know, whatever power you need to feel. That's great. Um, so, you know, I like that you brought in the grief and loss component, the identity component, the narrative component. I've talked a little bit about the stress component of it all. Um, And so we're hoping to um, get mobilization for this hotline to make it a reality and to, you know, train the counselors, especially to be able to have empathy, um, to validate the anger, to validate even the plans. Yeah. uh, Because this is, you know, we understand that you believe your life is over, but there is hope. Um, i I believe that most people in uh, if they can be re- rehabilitated um, now there are some that don't want to be rehabilitated that may have personality disorders or may have uh, so many layers of trauma that they've they or, or whatever that they've gotten to psychopathology or complete socio uh, sociopath- sociopathology, I can't even say it, to the point where they may, their brains may be working in a, in a way that no outside information will ever change them. But, um, I believe most people can be rehabilitated and especially a lot of the people that do commit acts of violence. Um, uh, I mean, they could have had a different life. I think some, yeah, sure. Some maybe couldn't have been prevented and, um, and maybe don't want to change and they, and this is their mission. But, um, there is hope for this and so we don't even need any new laws for this we don't need um, we don't need legislation we don't we don't even I don't even know um, I'm hoping to tie this to a SAMHSA grant and already utilize the National Suicide Helpline has centers all over the U.S. working for them and connected to different counties and already have relationships with different sheriff departments all over the U.S. and different hospitals. So if they had a department in each one of those for the violent calls in a different hotline, uh, I think that we could really make some headway because the infrastructure is already there, Mike. They're we just an, need the training and we need the money.
2: They're an ideal, they are an ideal model and, uh, to, to build upon, absolutely.
0: Right. And so, I mean, furthermore, I mean, we're not really a country of prevention. I mean, look at our healthcare, we won't even get into that. But I mean, we could eventually, like, I like the anger education, um, because anger is something it's easy to identify. Stress is easy to identify. Anger is easy to identify. You know, depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress, this takes a lot longer to maybe identify that for some people, but it's quite clear you know in movies and and, and in the literature um, you know in public in pop culture that anger is a thing I mean look at look at who's popular in rap and rock these days absolutely right you
2: know and I think that you mentioned the emotions that we can see loss doesn't get much press loss the, the the emotion of grief is is a painful uh, painful feeling and and so a lot of uh, of uh, counseling is grief work where people resolve their grief then they sure. can move on. And so, but they can see, live,
0: they can have a new narrative. They exactly. Can, their but, identity will change because somebody's but it, gone.
2: But it sounds right. so passive when you think of grief. My per, person's in grief, and they're, right. you see them, you see like their head down on a couch sitting there or laying in bed. They're depressed, they can't get out of bed. That's sort of our visual of grief. Cause, but we can see the anger. We can see that associated with the violence, so it doesn't dawn on us that the grief is the engine right. of the violence. And see, I think that's what could be helpful for people to, at a certain point, to have that knowledge. So right. that when we, this is where prevention comes in. When when we see a great big loss for somebody, we could mandate them for counseling, or talk them into it, or 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 or, or say, let me give you a benefit for doing this, or. But it should be more of a of a trigger thing of recognition. Rather than just the anger,
0: right? And it doesn't even just to be have to be counseling. I mean, we could have mentoring programs. Pure well, we
2: mentoring would be the best thing in the world.
0: Absolutely, we could yeah. have some sort of groups. We could have different things. Yeah. It doesn't even. I mean, we're counselors, so we know that counseling works. Yeah. I mean, the research is clear. In the Bruce Wampold meta-analysis of ten thousand counseling studies, seventy nine percent of the people that went to six to ten sessions of counseling felt better. Um, only twenty one percent felt neutral or. Worse, okay, that is insane. Amazing results, yeah, it's yeah. ridiculous. And so we even know. I even was reading some literature. I don't know where I found this, but one yeah. of my bosses, I they tricked me. They said, "Well, what's the literature say about people that are mandated to counseling versus people that are self-selecting?" And I said, "Well, of course, self-selecting people are going to do better because, and they're going to get better results because they uh, volunteer." And he said, "Actually, no, that is not what the research says. The research shows that in many cases, mandated counseling works better." If, if somebody's got, you know, a flame to the guy's foot and saying, you don't get off probation unless you go to these 20 sessions, you're going to see a larger degree of change and on the goals than mm-hmm. if somebody comes in and doesn't have – their only motivation is, you know, their, their spouse is mad at them or – um, you know, their job is saying you need anger management or, I mean, that's a little bit of a candle. But if they're really self-selecting and coming in and saying, hey, I want to work on this, they they may not want to, to get to the goal as fast as somebody who's mandated. And so uh, we know that the brain can change. We know that the brain can heal. We know that narrative and identity can and we know that trauma, grief, and loss can be, can be gone through, and people can be transformed. We can see this. We not only know because of counseling research going back decades, we know this because of neuroscience and what you focus on.
2: Yeah, simple as talking and listening, but to get a man to talk about his feelings. For men, in general, feelings are like weakness.
0: Ah, yes. And so- for
2: women, feelings are a way to connect, and that's why there's quite often this uh, challenging thing that goes on between in, in marriages. In couples,
0: oh yes, and that and there's a lot of research on that. Um, yeah, absolutely. The uh, Gottmans have a great book, many great books about that. Yeah. So that remember uh, reminds me, of my I have a friend Scott. Hendrickson, who's a fantastic therapist in Mesa, and he always told me about this poem by Charles Bukowski, uh-huh,
1: uh-huh. <laughs> who
0: wasn't exactly a great example of a guy, right. uh, a healthy male, but he did write a lot, and that was his, probably his best contribution to health. So this is a poem by Bukowski called Bluebird, since we're talking about males. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough for him. I say, stay in there. I'm not going to let anybody see you. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I pour whiskey on him and inhale cigarette smoke, and the whores and the bartenders and the grocery clerks never know that he's in there. There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too tough for him. I say, stay down. Do you want to mess me up? Do you want to screw up the works? You want to blow my book sales in Europe? There's a bluebird in my heart that wants to get out, but I'm too clever. I only let him out at night sometimes when everybody's asleep. I say, I know you're in there. So don't be sad. Then I put him back. But he's singing a little in there. I haven't quite let him die. And we sleep together like that with our secret pact. And it's nice enough to make a man weep. But I don't weep. Do you? (laughs) That's very good. I like that. Yeah. Yeah. And you know Bukowski is the quintessential tough guy, Absolutely. kind of toxic masculinity. If you've read his books, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But um, you know he was a trauma victim. Mm. Um, if you read his book Ham on Rye, you'll know his father was an alcoholic and beat the heck out of him pretty much every day yeah. because he rebelled and said, "You can't beat, you know, can't talk to my mom that way. You can't talk to me that way." Yeah. And so. You know, I do think there's a big part of the male part in this, but I I think that anybody can be triggered in these extreme situations. And what I'm finding even today, people are wondering, "Why why does this seem worse? Why are these people, you know, that kid had real loss with, you know, his parents dying and then something happened at school and he decided to take it out on everybody. But here's another thing, perceived victimization, perceived loss, perceived uh the world's against me even if somebody didn't have an actual event of somebody dying or something being taken away in a traumatic fashion but they're being told messages that you you males are screwed you're on your way out um you know you uh you you're never gonna get a good job because you're not smart enough they're replacing you with robots um you know, these people, these people are trying to take your jobs and they're told this over and over and over and stoking the flames of anger might then, because we have a freedom to think whatever we want and read whatever we want and listen to whatever we want, might then certain people, not all, but just certain people who, who are very stressed out, down on their luck, some bad things happening in their life, maybe relationships, might take this information, stoke the anger even with perceived grief and loss. These people are taking my life away. Well, perception is reality. Right, exactly. Yeah. So so there's so many different factors now that are complicating this. But if we could, you know, I was even thinking of this. My friend Jeremy said to me the other day, he said, hey, if we get funding for this thing, we could put up you know, AdWords, advertisements on YouTube videos, mm-hmm. on websites where- Even um, billboards. Billboards, sure. Yeah. But like what we would do is target websites where people are known, uh, they're angry and violent, you know, groups that have little discussion forums where people are angry and violent are watching these videos already that are, are more stoking the anger. We could advertise, hey- do you need help? Do you feel like your anger is getting out of control? Do you feel like you're making violent plans? There's hope for you. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, trying to reach out to these people that are on the edges of society, not having successes, um, they're not, you know, like besides this Vegas shooter, most of the people that are, you know, having these shootings and 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 different violent acts, they're not exactly doing that great. You know, they're they're having you know lots of interpersonal problems or financial problems or other issues, and therefore the stress is higher. And then they're not getting the help. They're Mm -hmm. not self-selecting to come in to counseling or go to a group or a mentor or whatever. And then we're getting this burst. And the burst is affecting our communities. It's affecting our schools. It's affecting our kids. I mean...
2: Our culture is starting to wake up to this. It is. Last year, a book was written uh, by a United States senator from Nebraska called Mm -hmm. The Vanishing American Adult. Oh, okay. this year, a new book has come out, and I don't know the gentleman's name. He's a psychologist, but the title of the book is The Boy Crisis. Mm, so we, okay. are, we are, as a culture, starting to wake up to this invisible issue of lack of rite of passage. Right. And, uh, and, and that's, uh, that's a part of this thing. And I see it because the addiction is the wake-up call for the problem.
0: For a lot of people. For a lot of people that well, I work the, with, yeah. Could be a phone addiction. Could be a drug addiction. Could be a soda addiction. Could be a bread add- It addiction. Anything could become an addiction. We, You get into it more when people are on drugs and they're endangering their lives and their families, right? Yeah.
2: yeah that's, but, it, but it's a wake-up call, and, and it's, it's not just stop using drugs. It's like, man, I, I've got to learn how to live in this life as a responsible adult. Without drugs and alcohol right. so that's a that's a piece to it that uh, that's
0: hard for us to see, yeah, the drugs and alcohol <clears throat> are just a symptom, yes, what's underneath yes. and what's in your story is more important. So I think we're kind of getting a good grasp on this again, this is just the beginning. Mike and I would love to have more prevention in schools, in prisons, um it, you know, advertising in movies, whatever we can do to mobilize to be able to help men and women in our country. And elsewhere, see that you actual violence is not an answer to your problem. Yeah. And and it's just begetting more violence and more problems and more fear. Um, you know, this this is a personal thing. I took my nephew, who's nine, to a basketball game about two months ago, a college basketball game. Because you know he was excited, and I wanted to take him. And he said to me after the game, where all thousands of people are filing out of this Big Ten stadium, and he said to me, "Uncle Paul, um, are are people going to shoot people?" Hmm. Hmm. And I said, "I said, well, what makes you think they would do?" They said, "I don't know. There's just a lot of people, and 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 you know, I've heard about people shooting people when they're in a big group. Like, I don't know if he said big. He's quite articulate. He mm-hmm. reads a lot of books at the." you know, seventh grade level, and he's like nine, but, you know, in in a big group, they could shoot us. And I said, Mm -hmm. you know, you don't, don't worry about that. Mm -hmm. What, you know, that's okay. We're all here to play, watch a basketball game. We're all just getting along, just a lot of people. And, you know, I would have never asked that question 18 years ago, before Columbine. I would have never asked that question. I thought, you know, okay, I've heard of people shooting people at the post office. Um, I don't want to work there, you know, or, you know, uh, domestic violence. I'd never heard of this, of this stuff. And so my nephew is nine years old, having to ask me, are we safe to walk down the street? Cause there's a lot of people here. That, that is one of the things I think driving me,
1: yeah.
0: not that, you know, me or you can, and can eradicate this, but to, to help our culture in a way, start taking responsibility, both the elder males and the elder females in our country. Hey, everyone who's retired you need something to do mentor somebody mm-hmm. you know what golf is great for a while but it gets old yeah. and and we we need the elders of our country to start thinking about the trees they're planting that they won't have the shade under and that and in a lot of ways you know those human relationships it's not just you building a fund and building a building for science or building a building or whatever money you're donating for a plaque get involved in your community mentor a young boy or girl who's struggling because we can't just reduce it to mental illness this is their narrative this is their story and this is their country too and so they're right there if people are like well this is helpless i don't know what to do i don't know what what can i do you can mentor somebody in your community informally or formally easy just talk to them
2: you know what i would like to see uh, as far as a grassroots thing sure is eventually some form of universal service at age 18 for two years, like they have over in, uh, in, uh, Israel. Israel. And what happens there is that would then be a big chunk of the rite of passage thing that's missing. Absolutely. Where, where, where young people could get some self-esteem by doing projects
0: together.
2: They'd learn how to work together. They'd learn discipline by getting up in the morning and that would give them a foundation upon which to build, uh, adulthood you cannot build a foundation of adulthood on 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 uh, adolescence adolescence is a time to build the foundation for adulthood that right. you will then use your ego yeah so but mm-hmm. if you if you don't do that if you just remain that same adolescent through the years and you get older till age 18 there is no foundation and yet our culture thinks there is one no, there's not. are there not Just really Just because you have a
0: driver's license and, yeah. and you have a bank account and, and so, a credit card. And,
2: and I think to me, that's what I work with all the, day, all the time. I continually help parents understand the limitations of their present good parenting in this drug age that we live in. And so that's a piece of this of this issue as well. And, uh, and those titles of those books are letting us know that the culture is waking up to this invisible issue right. that there's two problems. Not only do we not have a rite of passage... But number two, we pretend we do.
0: Oh, sure although, we do. Uh,
2: although if you talk to an expert, no one will be able to tell you what it is. Sure. And so so there's a challenge of sort of a blind, uh, a cultural blind spot. And so there's no one to blame for that.
0: No, oh, yeah. We're not blaming anybody. Yeah, there's nobody we're, to blame. We just live that. here. <laughs> we're uh, just trying to react. But- and respond
2: but so this is my theory behind the whole thing is hundred and twenty years ago ninety percent of the population lived in farming communities mm. so we had the grocer the neighbor uh, the teacher who had time and mm. opportunity and permission to interact with your child and be like an elder sure and impart a, a life coaching skill uh, excuse me uh, uh, an adult
0: uh, adult living skills an or- adult
2: living and, and uh, coping skill sure and and so that was, we gradually lost that when we industrialized. So I think that's what the uh, sort part of the, of the genesis history. of this history that has changed so much over the years.
0: Right. And so, and there's, and we could, you know, keep going about the individualization and all this stuff. But I think, I think what we're trying to do is let's start with the most pragmatic, basic thing a hotline for people that are already there. Yep. Then, prevention. And I know that they're already doing, you know, this anti-bullying thing in schools is getting huge, which I yeah. think is helpful because it's humanizing both the victim and the bully to be able to realize what's going on and stop blaming everybody and figure out, you know, what's going on there. And and there, there's a good initiative there. And I know, you know, we've been making, there's a lot of things that there's good news happening, or, uh, you know, a lot of people are getting involved and being more aware of uh, mental wellness, mental health. And it's not even just mental wellness, mental health, it's just human, human health. And, and what, what kind of place do we want to live? So thanks, Mike, for coming on here and sharing your, your wisdom about anger uh, uh, and uh, grief and loss and how that can affect uh, the violence.
2: Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having me. And I would just say one thing to to anyone who's in a family listening here. If you if you are open to going and seeing a counselor for your own loss and grief issues that go all the way back to childhood, we all have them Sure. and just go see a counselor who knows about this subject and do a checkup with them. Uh, That brings a wonderful gift to everyone else in the family.
0: Absolutely. We all go to the doctor every year for our checkup, right? So what if we went for our emotional checkup and just, there's no shame in this. We are all human. We all have problems. We all have our, 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 problems that happened years ago we all we all have grief and loss we all know people we've all have unresolved probably issues with different friendships and relationships and if you spend even a little bit of time on them they can clear up and stop causing you these pain this symptoms this this uh, this uh need to dissociate or deny or whatever it is your life can get better and it's it's a proven fact and it, it happened this was going on way before counseling and psychology was even invented, okay? I mean, we can even talk about the way that Jewish people used to deal with the body of somebody that died, and some still do in some cultures. They would take the family, when somebody died, they would lay the body there for seven days, you're in the house, crying, weeping, anger, bargaining with God, screaming, accepting, going through the cycle again and again, and everyone from your community would come and bring you food. They'd come in. They'd come and coach you until vi- eventually you were just exhausted, and, and it helped you accept the loss,
2: completing the completing the grief work that needed to be done to resolve. So we use the term "resolve your grief," right? Grief resolution. And, and our culture doesn't even recognize the
0: need for so that. So you weren't carrying the pain yeah. around. Yeah. And, and and you know this isn't a, a foolproof thing, but the point is, is, it's a lot better than not doing anything. Yeah. And and so counseling and psychology have taken the roles in our. Um, modern culture with a bunch of different cultures mixed in because there isn't one dominant culture. And I believe psychology is filling in a lot of the gaps of a lot of um, village elders and healers and, um, you know, different things. So, um, you know, that's where we're at, I think. But I, I definitely also echo, Mike, if you feel uh, you know, find a good counselor. Find somebody who's reputable in your community and who you feel gets you. And even just go for four to six sessions. If you have insurance, you probably ha- uh, due to the mental health parity law, you have rights to get counseling. If you um, work for a business, a lot of times they have employee assistance program called EAP, where there'll be six to uh, twelve sessions of free counseling. Um, there are, uh, and you can also always negotiate with a counselor. And for out of f- pocket fee Uh, and also if you don't if you're on Medicaid or the Affordable Care Act plans all of those plans should now have counseling as a benefit and which means you would be a a low copay to see a counselor Um, so we definitely recommend that do your research and um, your life can change thank you all right thanks Mike and um, Mike can you tell people just a little bit about how to get a hold of you your website and all that stuff
2: Website is speakmancoaching dot com, and there's information on the the life coaching that I that I do, which is I'm working mostly with parents of, uh, of addicts and alcoholics. Um, and there's also resources uh, that people can can download and use from that
0: website. All right, there you have it. This has been a special edition of the Intentional Clinician Podcast. Remember, this is not a substitute for counseling or any sort of medical or official advice. We may be experts in our field, but that does not mean this podcast is giving you what you need. So if you need a counselor or medical attention or anything else, please go find an expert in your area. You can find a good counselor by finding licensed professional counselors in your area on Psychology Today, and other such websites. I am in Grand Rapids, Michigan, at Health for Life Grand Rapids. That's healthforlifegr.com, and there's about six other counselors in my office who do fantastic job. If you're looking for somebody, we have a lot of resources for you there. Remember to sign the petition, please, at violencepreventionhotline.org. We would love your help and support. And so since this has been a special episode, I wanted to leave you with an inspirational song. My brother wrote a song called Spencer, Rob, and Depression, and it's about uh, a couple of comedians he likes in Los Angeles, and they had apparently been public about their depression uh, that they were going through, and he wrote them a song And I found that the song was quite universally appealing and very inspirational, and so I wanted to play that at the end of the podcast. My brother's music name is Types, that's T-T-Y-P-E-S, but apparently on Bandcamp, where you can find all of his music, it's T-T-T-T-Y-P-E-S dot Bandcamp dot com. And this is the song. Thanks for listening. (laughs) ¶¶
1: is lying to you Cheer up We are rooting for you Life is a sequence of various verbs Always and never a dangerous words. We are the architects of our own life Every new moment a guess of the die Future's not a promise And the past is not a grade But the briefness of the candle Makes so much more precious day depression is lying to you Don't only seductive because you know you Perspective is needed to see other paths Hope is not constant but can be renewed I've tried Depression is lying to you chaotic and there's always gamma rays, but the breezes of a candle makes for much more precious days. We are the architects of our own life, every new moment a cast of the dime. I can't say 'Cause you know you perspective is needed to see your path. Hope is not constant, but give me more.